A new breed of college rankings has emerged, one that seeks to grade schools based not on their acceptance rates, SAT scores, or faculty resources, but rather on the extent to which they provide opportunities for students from low-income families. Whether it's the share of students receiving federal Pell Grants or the share from the bottom 20% of the national income distribution, these new opportunity measures aim to encourage colleges to look beyond the well-off students who are most likely to enroll and seek out those who are needier. But does a college's ranking on these measures accurately capture its success in recruiting low-income students? If not, how should colleges evaluate their performance in serving well-qualified students of all incomes? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Caroline Hawksby, the Scott and Danya Bomber Professor of Economics at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Along with Sarah Turner, she's the author of The Right Way to Measure College Opportunity, which will appear in the spring 2019 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Caroline, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thank you, Marty, for having me on. So your article offers a forceful critique of what you refer to as popular measures of college opportunity. What are the measures that you have in mind? Well, there are three measures that we are specifically taking up, uh, Sarah Turner and myself. The first one is the Pell share. That's the share of students in a university who are eligible for Pell grants. Those are the federal grants for low-income students. The second measure is called the bottom quintile measure. That's the whether what percentage of a college's students are in the bottom 20% of the national income distribution. Note that I underscored the word national there. That turns out to be important. And then the third measure is one that's a bit more difficult for people to understand. It is called the intergenerational mobility measure. Now this third measure, the intergenerational mobility measure, is created by taking the bottom quintile, in other words, the percentage of students who are in the bottom 20% of the national income distribution, let's say that might be 15% of students, something like that, and then multiplying that 15%, say, by a, an estimate of the probability that the students who start off in the bottom 20% on their based on their parents' income are going to end up in the top 20% when they are adults based on their own earnings. So that is the intergenerational mobility measure. Those are the three measures that we're considering. And we're considering them not arbitrarily, but because they are the measures on which these new rankings are based. And they have been receiving an enormous amount of attention. And there is now legislation that is pending to penalize schools that do not do well on these measures and to reward schools that do well on these measures. That sort of legislation is pending both at the federal level, but also at, in a number of state legislators, legislatures, I'm sorry. And in, in addition, there are philanthropic organizations such as American Talent Initiative, which is sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies, that are penalizing or rewarding schools based on these measures. And although you're critical of the measures themselves, you and Sarah are careful to say that you're not critical of the intentions behind them. I take that to mean that you think that there are more low-income students who could benefit by attending selective institutions than currently enroll, and that colleges can and should be doing more to recruit them. Is that right? 
That's exactly right. In fact, if we take a step back, uh, it's important to observe that uh, in my work with Christopher Avery, which now goes back a while, I was probably the first person to really draw attention to the fact that there were more low-income, highly qualified students in the United States than were attending the selective colleges and universities for which their achievement seemed best positioned. We were, uh, Chris Avery and I, our, our paper, um, which is called The Missing One-Offs, was really the first to identify the fact that there were many more low-income, high-achieving students than were going to selective colleges and universities. And we tried to track down why that problem existed. There were two lessons that people should have learned from that paper and some follow-up work. The first lesson was that there were a lot of low-income, high-achieving students who were not attending selective colleges and universities. And the second lesson, and this is inherent in the title, The Missing One-Offs, was that they were not particularly easy to find if colleges and universities continued to use the crude recruiting methods that they had been using so far to find low-income students. Essentially, colleges and universities were looking under the lamppost because that was where the light was brightest. So that a university like Yale was scouring the New Haven public schools for low-income, highly qualified students, or Columbia was scouring the high schools within one mile radius of the university for low-income, high-achieving students. Or universities and colleges were going to magnet schools that were well-known to have many high-achieving, low-income students and just scouring those for their students. Those students were essentially tapped out. And what we argued in this paper and showed with evidence was that that was only about one-eighth of the total low-income, highly qualified students, and the other ones tended to be one-offs. They were low-income students who were attending high schools where they weren't in some sort of big cluster. They weren't within a mile of a major university, and they were just at some high school where they happened to be the low-income student who was very high-achieving, and they were being not reached by colleges and universities, and they were ending up not applying and not enrolling, and they needed to be reached in a different way that was more data-driven and more informed. And then Sarah Turner and myself did a lot of research to show, using a randomized control trial, that if you did informational and related interventions with low-income high achievers, you could get many more students to apply and to go to selective colleges and universities. However, the new students who applied were the students who were the one-offs. They were the students who were isolated in the high school, the only high achiever in their high school, the only low-income high achiever in their high school, or one of only two. They were not the students who were previously going to the magnet school or who were previously being, you know, already recruited because they were under the lamppost. So what we the reason that we got started on this current project is precisely that we were very very keen on colleges and universities getting better at recruiting students from across the income distribution and at evaluating themselves and whether they're doing that job but what we noticed was that despite the fact that i think most university presidents and deans of admission have good reading skills um and despite the fact that 
we did TED Talks and things like that about these issues, they didn't pick up on that second lesson at all. Instead, they picked up only on the first lesson, which was there are many more low-income students who could be recruited, and they simply doubled down on their crude recruiting methods and tried to do more of the same. In other words, they would do things like go to schools with high shares of students with free and reduced lunch, where there would be a cluster of very poor students, and they would simply insist that they would get enough students from schools like that. But essentially, they did nothing to improve their recruiting methods. They were no more data-driven than they had been before. They weren't actually expanding opportunity to a larger group of students. And initiatives, like the American Talent Initiative from Bloomberg Philanthropies, also doubled down on this sort of dumb recruiting. Um, and what we're trying to do is get these colleges and universities to actually do the outreach uh, that they need to do. And they're not going to do that unless they are trying to work towards measures that will reward them for uh, actually achieving what it is that they are intending to achieve. Now, at least in theory, these new opportunity measures are to some degree intended to capture the extent to which schools are making effective efforts to enroll low-income students. The basic problem that you identify is that they confound differences in colleges' effort to enroll low-income students with differences in the college's circumstances. How is this the case? Yes, that's exactly right. Let me give you two concrete examples because I think it's very helpful to be concrete here. Let's say that we take the University of Maine and the University of Connecticut, uh, both state flagship universities located in New England. And let's say that each one of those universities recruits each and every student in the state that um, or who satisfies their normal admissions uh, criteria. So the University of Maine recruits all of the Mainers who satisfy its admissions criteria and the University of Connecticut does the same thing with Connecticut students. Well, it would turn out that the University of Maine would have recruited 22% of its students from the bottom 20% of the US national income distribution. So it would do very well on what's called the bottom quintile measure, and also it would do very well on the Pell share measure and the intergenerational mobility measure. Now let's look at the University of Connecticut. Connecticut has a higher average income than the University of Maine. So even if, in fact, it did just as good a job at recruiting the low-income students from the Connecticut distribution, it would only come out with a 10% share of its students coming from the national bottom 20% or the national bottom quintile. The University of Connecticut would also do poorly on the Pell share measure and on the intergenerational mobility measure. Now, I specifically created this example because uh, I've, I said they were both doing equally well in terms of recruiting the students from their own, what we like to call, Sarah Turner and I, the relevant pool, the pool of Maine students or the pool of Connecticut students. And yet the University of Maine would have been rewarded greatly and the University of Connecticut would have been penalized based on any of these three popular measures. That doesn't make sense because the difference is not in their effort. I 
by definition, in my example, they were both making equally good effort, but the difference would have been in their circumstances. I should mention, by the way, that actually the University of Connecticut makes, appears to be making significantly better effort than the University of Maine in recruiting low-income students from its pool, yet the University of Connecticut is generally uh, slated for penalties under the popular measures, whereas the University of Maine is actually slated for rewards. I want to use a different example as well because it's not just a matter of whether the average income in a state is higher or lower, as in my main Connecticut example. It also matters whether the distribution of income in a state or in an area in the relevant pool that a university faces has high income inequality or low income inequality. So again, let me give a specific example so that people can understand something concrete. The University of Wisconsin, located in Wisconsin, faces a relevant pool of students whose parents have unusually equal incomes in the, for the United States. Now that's a long-standing part of Wisconsin history. It's just an unusually equal state. There aren't very many low-income people in Wisconsin by national standards. And there also aren't very many high-income people in Wisconsin by national standards. It's a sort of largely middle-class state. And I think that's a good thing. And most people think that is a good thing for children that they're growing up in an environment which is very equal in terms of incomes. At the opposite extreme are states like California. California has a very unequal income distribution. It has some very poor people, many of whom live in the Central Valley, which is the farming area of California. They're farm laborers. They are um, first generation often, very low income people in the state of California. There are quite a number of them. California also has some of the highest income people in the United States, many of whom live in Hollywood, Los Angeles, the San Francisco Bay Area, etc. So it has these two, it has a disproportionate number of low-income students and high-income students. It's just the opposite of Wisconsin. Well, the intergenerational mobility measure penalizes a university like the University of Wisconsin. Why? Because, as you will recall, the intergenerational mobility measure rewards universities for having a lot of students in the bottom 20% of the national income distribution. Wisconsin doesn't have very many people in that bottom 20%. The intergenerational mobility measure also rewards a university for having students who end up in the top 20% of the national income distribution. But as I mentioned earlier, because Wisconsin is so equal, it doesn't have very many people in the top 20% either. So the University of Wisconsin gets punished two ways. It gets punished first for not having enough low-income people, and secondly, it gets punished for not having enough very high-income people. So it gets punished for the state having income equality. Now that seems really perverse. On the other hand, if you look at the University of California schools, or other schools in California for that matter, they get rewarded because the state has such high income inequality. It has a disproportionate number of very low-income people, and it has a disproportionate number of very high-income people. 
that doesn't seem like a very good way of rewarding universities. We shouldn't be rewarding them for their circumstances, and certainly not for bad circumstances like high income inequality, such as California has, and penalizing them for having low income inequality, as in Wisconsin. So what we are doing is saying, yes, we want universities to recruit across the income distribution. We want them to be seeking out low-income qualified students, but they should not be rewarded for circumstances as opposed to effort, and they certainly should not be rewarded for bad circumstances, um, which just seems perverse. Now, in the article, you describe the kinds of examples that you just provided as offering a proof by contradiction that the popular measures don't work, and that makes sense to me. But let me play devil's advocate for a moment about just one aspect of the analysis. I could imagine a listener saying, well, isn't focusing just on students who match a college's current admission standards letting colleges off the hook to some extent? That is, shouldn't schools consider admitting less prepared students and then providing them with the support they need in order to succeed? I think that's a very good question and thank you for asking it, Marty. In our article, uh, Sarah Turner and I are very careful to say that we, the economists here, or the policy analysts here, are not the people who ought to be deciding what a college or university's mission should be. That is something that the college or university should be deciding. Its leadership, its president, its provost, its deans, its dean of admission, its board of trustees, and its alumni and its other constituents, uh, in the case of a public university, for instance, the state legislature. That is their decision. They should decide who they want to try to admit in terms of academic qualifications, who they want to admit in terms of economic diversity, and any other uh, admissions uh, criteria that are important to the mission and goals of the university. That is up to them, and that should not be decided by a couple of outside economists or a little team of outside economists or something like that. that, that that's, we're not the right person, people to decide that. So what we have said is you decide who you want to admit, and we will give you a tool that will allow you to evaluate yourself as a university against your own mission and goals. And that's really one of the things we also, we're, we're trying to do in this paper is not just critique the popular measures, but propose a new measure that would allow any university that was willing and able to define its mission and goals and what it wanted to do in terms of recruiting students to evaluate itself. And we do not think that it makes sense for universities to farm out their determination or discussion of their mission and goals to other people. That is something they ought to do for themselves. We should be in the business of giving them the tools to figure out whether they're doing it well or whether they're doing it badly compared to their own mission. So let me get back to your question just to make it concrete again. Let's say that a university looked at its enrollment and it decided, you know, we just don't have enough economic diversity here. And maybe what we need to do is change our admission standards, maybe particularly for low-income students, bring in more low-income students and, you know, maybe bring them up to speed with a summer 
camp or tutoring before they come in or uh, special enrichment courses in their senior year or something like that. All of those, that's fine. That's great if that's what they want to do. That's what the university should do is say, that's what we have decided to do. Now give us the tools to see whether we are actually improving on the new set of criteria that we have given ourselves. But Sarah Turner and I, what we want to do is give them the tools to learn about what they're doing now fully. And then also the set of tools that will help them learn whether if they do decide to change their admission standards, for instance, is it working? That's what we're trying to do. Give them the tools. So we shouldn't be expecting the Hawksby Turner rankings to be published starting in 2019, I take it then. Um, but, you know, there these other rankings are already out there. As you mentioned previously, there are proposals to tie explicit incentives to them. They're already being published. Is there any evidence that these other measures have already distorted college's behavior in unintended ways. Yes, unfortunately, there is a lot of evidence that these existing rankings, which are now, as you note, uh, out there in the public sphere, have already distorted behavior. I will mention two specific ways in which they have distorted behavior. We can see them very easily in the data. And sadly, some of the universities and colleges that have been most praised, in some cases given national awards for improving on these published rankings, those are some of the schools that have most distorted their behavior. So let me give you an, a, a first example of what schools do to distort their behavior. And this is really a disturbing one. It is that in order to improve on, say, the Pell share measure, the school designs a financial aid policy such that if a student is, say, $1 below the eligibility threshold, that means that their family has just $1 less than the Pell eligibility threshold, the school gives the student very generous financial aid. If the family has $1 above the Pell eligibility threshold, just makes $1 too much, then the school withdraws generous financial aid from the student. Now, you might say, why would a school do something like that? That seems a little bit crazy. The reason is that if you have a student who is just below the Pell eligibility threshold and you enroll that student with generous financial aid, you do better on the rankings. That student counts towards the rankings. If you enroll the student who's just above the Pell eligibility threshold, the school gets no credit on these rankings for that student. And yet, in order to enroll that student, you need to give that student generous financial aid too. So what we see schools doing is moving all of the financial aid to the students who are just below the Pell eligibility threshold and depriving other low-income students who are just above the threshold or low to middle income students, what I would call sort of working middle class students. They're not poor, but they're certainly not rich either. They're below median income, removing the financial aid from them. And that's not too surprising when you think about the incentives that these schools are given by these rankings. They get credit for every Pell Grant student. They get no credit for these other low income students or working class students whose families are just above the Pell eligibility threshold. 
And let me say something else about this one distortion, because it's a misconception that people have. They think, well, it's reasonable that schools are very interested in the Pell eligible students because they're getting this federal grant and the students above the Pell eligibility threshold are not. Nope, that's not the right way to think about it. Because a student who's just below the eligibility threshold for the Pell Grant gets a very small Pell Grant. So there's really no reason for these schools to be so keen on getting them just to get several hundred dollars. Instead, they're eager to get them because they get credit for each Pell Grant eligible student in these rankings. And we have seen schools that used to give generous financial aid to middle working class students and lower income students who are not Pell eligible, and they've taken away that financial aid, and they're giving it only now to students who are below the Pell eligibility threshold. And I have to say, I think that's a very serious distortion and very unfair uh, to students who are um, sort of working class just above, who are still low income students. So that's one of the distortions that we see, and that's very obvious in the data. And as I said earlier, we see that that pattern has particularly come out for some schools that have been given awards and national recognition for improving their share of Pell eligible students. The second distortion that we see is a little bit more subtle in the data, but it still exists. And that is that a college or university can simply lower its admission standards for students whom it thinks will be Pell eligible or in the bottom quintile of the national income distribution. Now, there's nothing wrong uh, with setting somewhat different admission standards for kids from different backgrounds because students who are disadvantaged may face different challenges. They come from different high schools. They may have had fewer opportunities to prepare themselves to take the SAT and the ACT and AP exams. So there's nothing wrong with having nuanced admission standards that take those differences in family background into account. However, if the reason why you are cutting admission standards is that you're just trying to do better on the Pell share measure or the bottom quintile measure or the intergenerational mobility measure, and it's not really about addressing the challenges that students face from different backgrounds, it's just trying to do better on these measures, then the university is departing from its educational mission just in order to do better on these rankings uh, in the way that also the old US News and World Report uh, rankings often caused schools to depart from their educational missions. Moreover, and I really want to emphasize this, it is not necessary for any school in the United States at this point in time to reduce its admission standards purely in order to get more low-income students. Why not? Let's go back to the initial finding that I had in my paper with Chris Avery. There are many, many more low-income qualified students than currently apply. The reason why we see colleges and universities lowering their admission standards is not that they have to do it. There are plenty of qualified low-income students out there whom they could recruit. The reason why they're lowering their admission standards is that they are determined to get more, say, Pell-eligible or bottom quintile students while not changing their recruiting methods and still insisting on looking only at the same set of high schools 
and the same set of uh, students who are under the lamppost, as it were. It's their unwillingness to change their methods and to adopt smart, data-driven methods of finding low-income qualified students that put them in this bind where they feel like, hey, the only way we can recruit more low-income students is to just lower our admission standards. That's wrong. There are plenty of low-income, better qualified students out there, and they just have to change how they recruit students, seek students, give information to students, and so on. They have to be smarter and better. My guest today has been Caroline Hawksby, professor of economics at Stanford, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and co-author of The Right Way to Measure College Opportunity, available now at educationnext.org. Caroline, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Marty. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.